Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. If you're old enough to remember the morning of September 11, 2001, and the clear blue sky in New York City before 8.45 a.m., then this excerpt from Ground Zero, Alan Gratz's latest novel, will have a haunting familiarity. A thick, heavy smoke cloud hung over lower Manhattan. Outside had looked bright when they were underground, but now that they were up on the street, the sky was so dim, it felt like twilight. It looked, too, like somebody had driven a tank through the city. Trash cans and cars were crushed, lamp posts were bent, bus stops were broken, and trees were shattered. And everything was covered with a fine, light gray dust. A fire truck and an ambulance parked in the middle of Vesey Street were coated in the same stuff, their red light still flashing underneath the thin layer of gray. The dust reminded Brandon of snow. Not just the way it blanketed everything, but how it made things quiet, too. Muffled the sounds of the city. Manhattan was never quiet, not even at night. But now it felt as quiet and still as the underground mall had been after the blast. Something else was wrong, too. Where are all the people? Gail whispered. There were footprints in the dust, but the streets were empty. There were always people in Manhattan, millions of them. Now there were none. Pratik turned and took a step back. Oh my God, he whispered. Brandon looked up. It took his brain a long moment to process what he was seeing, or what he wasn't seeing. What was supposed to be in the big empty slice of the Manhattan skyline, but wasn't there anymore. The South Tower of the World Trade Center was gone. The whole 107-floor skyscraper had collapsed. All of our lives changed on September 11, 2001, including my own. My brother Michael and his best friend Tuck were killed in the North Tower of the World Trade Center. I watched the attacks and the collapse of the Twin Towers from a commuter ferry heading to Lower Manhattan. My family and I, like countless others, have borne the scars of that day and been comforted by friends and strangers alike who somehow understood what we were going through. Alan captures the horror of that fateful morning 20 years ago and the complicated fallout in Ground Zero, a novel of 9-11. The story features nine-year-old Brandon, who finds himself trapped in the elevator in the North Tower when a plane hits the building. His father is working in the upstairs restaurant, Windows on the World. Ground Zero also tells about Reshmina, an 11-year-old girl who was living in a remote, mountainous region of Afghanistan in 2019. Members of the Taliban are routinely engaging in attacks with U.S. and Afghan National Army soldiers, with civilians like Reshmina's older sister collateral damage. Afghans did not do this attack Rashmina angrily tells a U.S. soldier about 9-11, you are seeking revenge against the wrong people. Here to tell us more about his riveting tale is Alan Gratz, the acclaimed New York Times bestselling author of Refugee, 
allies, and code of honor, among several other titles. Hi, Alan. Thank you so much for being here today. Hey, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. I'm really eager to jump in here. Tell our listeners about your latest novel, Ground Zero, a novel of 9-11. Ground Zero is the story of two different kids in two different places and two different time periods. The first is nine-year-old Brandon, and Brandon has gotten in trouble at school, and he has been suspended. And so he has to go into work with his dad, who happens to work at Windows on the World, the restaurant at the very top of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. And it is September 11th, 2001. And Brandon is in the North Tower when the first plane hits, and he has to try and survive and see if he can find a way to save his father as well. And the second character is Reshmina. She is 11 years old. She is an Afghan girl, and uh, she lives in a village in southeastern Afghanistan in the present day. And she hopes to one day perhaps become a teacher or a translator to help support her family. And when American soldiers come to her village for the first time, she's excited to try out her English skills. But almost as soon as they've arrived, the American soldiers are attacked by the Taliban and her village becomes a war zone, a battleground. And she and her family take one of the wounded American soldiers into their home. But her younger brother, I'm sorry, her her twin brother, Hassoun, blames the Americans for their older sister's death in a drone attack. And he leaves to go and tell the Taliban that that their family is harboring an American soldier. And now Reshmina has to try and get to her brother and stop him in time, or else the Taliban will come back and kill the American soldier and likely everybody else in the village. I I go back and forth telling the story of these two young people and then show you the parallels along the way in their stories and also how these two characters are connected across the thousands of miles that separate them and the, the decades that separate them. How did this story take you from the little boy Brandon in the elevator all the way to Reshmina in a rural area in Afghanistan. I had stayed away from writing about 9-11 for some time. I tried about 10 years ago to write about 9-11, and even then it was still too raw and too, uh, too painful for me and for my editor then at the time at, at Penguin. And I, I just put that story away. It just it, it didn't work. It was too soon, even though it was 10 years later. And, and I, I didn't know what I was trying to say because I guess I, I guess my feelings about it weren't over <laughs> and I, I, I didn't know how to handle that. So I, I put the idea of writing about uh, 9-11 away. Uh, but of course, this year, 2021, is the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And I did a lot of school visits back when we could visit schools in person. And one of the big questions that kids would ask me over and over and over again was, are you going to write a book about 9-11? Are you going to write a book about 9-11? And I would say, maybe, maybe, maybe. But I kept thinking in my head, no way. I, like, I, that, I tried once and it was so difficult emotionally to do that I, I don't think I can do that. But then I realized that, look, my own daughter is, she turned 19 this month. She is a sophomore in college. She was born the year after 9-11. She was born in 2002. She wasn't alive during it the way you were speaking of, the way you and I were. We remember it viscerally. We, we, we watched it happen. We experienced it. 
we, we dealt with the aftermath of that for a long time, maybe decades even. We've been dealing with it. But, but young people, whether they're in elementary school or middle school or high school or even into college, were not alive on 9-11 and don't really understand it. And I realized, okay, so I keep having kids ask me to write this, not just because they want a, a book about 9-11 because they're so interested in it. Many of them don't know much about it at all, and they want to know more about it. So I said, okay, I will do it. For this year, for 2021, I will write a book about 9-11. So I was on the phone with my editor at Scholastic, Amy Friedman. She's amazing. And I always love to give her a shout out. And Amy and I were talking about this. And I said, I think I want to write something about 9-11 for the anniversary. And she said, yes, this would be, this would be perfect. And I, but I said right then, the first time we talked about it, I said, but Amy, I cannot and will not write a book that is just about that day, that is just about September 11th, 2001. Because the, the message at the end of that day was Muslim terrorists are coming to kill us. And that day they were. But that has not been the message of the last 20 years. In the last 20 years, we have other things that have become much more dominant problems for us as American citizens. Uh, we have pandemics. We have racism. We have climate change. We have domestic terrorists and not, not even to mention foreign terrorists. There are so many other things that concern us now. And I said, if I write a book where the end of it is Muslim terrorists are coming to kill us, and that's the message I leave off with, what kind of message is that going to be sending to young people who pick this up for the first time and say, oh, oh my gosh, that's, that's the message of this book. And so I said, I have to do something else in this book that shows the impact of 9-11 20 years later. And right then and there, I said, what if we have a kid in Afghanistan right now who is dealing with the war in Afghanistan. When, when I wrote this book, I guess I wrote this book a couple of years, started writing this book a couple of years ago. We were well into our 17th, 18th year of the war in Afghanistan. It is ending now, question mark, just in the last day or two as we're recording this podcast. We have seen what they say are the last flights out of Afghanistan, the last, the, the evacuation of, of soldiers and, and American civilians in Afghanistan. And yet we've seen attacks on the Kabul airport that we're retaliating against, and we know we're still conducting drone strikes there. So while the ground war may be over in Afghanistan, are we still at war in Afghanistan? We might be. Uh, and we're coming up on the anniversary of September 11th, 20 years later. And so I, I knew that I wanted right from the start to tell a story of that day, to, to put a kid in the towers and see what happened and, the, and feel the confusion and the the, the anger and, and the fear of that day, viscerally. But I also knew that I wanted to show the effects of 9-11 20 years later. And of course, one of the biggest effects is the war in Afghanistan. And so for that, I tell the story of Reshmina. And that story is set in 2019. I actually, as I was writing this book, Amy and I were talking about whether or not I should set it in 2020 or in 2021. When you're writing a book, it, it, the book is going to come out a year later. And so we were really, I felt in my heart that we would not be out of Afghanistan until at least September 11th, 2021. I, I, could have, I could have done it. I could have made the story set this year, but it said in 2019 to be safe, to, to know that we would still be at war then. And so that story would still make sense and, and not need to be corrected later. I knew that I wanted to connect these two characters because for me, it was really important to not only show what happened that day, but the consequences of 9-11 of 20 years later. I can appreciate that. And what I appreciated so much in the story was 
the nuance that you showed in Afghanistan. I think for us, as you say, after 9-11, it was a, a black and white issue, good versus evil. But here you show the very complex feelings that the people of, of Afghanistan have towards Americans and with good reason. It's not all positive. Yes, you're right. In the, in the days and, and weeks immediately following 9-11, there was a general consensus in the United States and in the world that we had every right to go after the people who had done this and do whatever it took to get them, including invading uh, a sovereign country to hunt down Osama bin Laden, the orchestrator, the planner of the attacks. And uh, we had an international coalition that went in with us because the world agreed that we, we uh, had a right for, to, to get vengeance for this, uh, to bring to people, uh, to make people accountable for this. But what it became was something else. Uh, it became a 20-year struggle to try to build a new country in Afghanistan, uh, something that that many empires and and uh, countries ahead of us have tried to do over and over and over again for centuries with no success, and none of us seem to learn the lesson. It is very easy to conquer Afghanistan. It always has been. It is almost impossible to maintain control over Afghanistan, and it always has been. We saw that ourselves. And yes, it became a much more nuanced situation in just a year or two after we went to war in Afghanistan, we, you know, we immediately turned around and, and went to war uh, in Iraq, trying to to track down weapons of mass destruction, and and uh, we know uh, how that turned out. And and our our lack of focus on Afghanistan really made a, the situation even worse. When I'm when I'm talking about Afghanistan, I wanted to get in there. I wanted to talk about how we're in an impossible situation there. There's no good answer to Afghanistan. Um, should we stay? If we stay, we can help women and girls have more freedom. We can uh, help maintain a democratically elected government. We can uh, put an end to the Taliban's awful rule. So if we stay, all those good things could happen. But if we stay also, we are still fighting a war there. And innocent people, civilians are dying every day as we battle the Taliban slash insurgents, whatever you want to call them at this point. And one of the big themes in Ground Zero for me is this idea that you can't help somebody and hurt them at the same time. That that's, you're not helping if you're hurting, and if you're hurting, you're not helping. And I, I wanted to try and show that perspective uh, from Reshmina. She has lost people in her own family due to American friendly fire or, 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 or to, to collateral damage. And um, it's very difficult for her family to see the American involvement in Afghanistan is all good when they have themselves been the victims of, uh, of the American war there. Uh, but if they leave, if, when the Americans leave, things may, will, will likely be worse for them. But so it, it was a situation that really, honestly, the only thing I can tell you for sure is that, that I feel that I feel um, 100% positive in saying is we should never have been there in the first place. Um, <laughs> how we dealt with it and how we got out of there, that was always going to be a, a murky and nuanced subject. But to tell Rashmina's perspective, as you did, an 11-year-old girl uh, who's been scarred by war, how did you do that? How did you put yourself in her shoes? That It's always a challenge when I am writing about somebody who's not me to, to see the world through their eyes. But I really do have to sort of set my own 
my own life and my own history aside and say, if, if I'm Reshmina and I have grown up knowing nothing but war, um, you know, she was born into a war. She's 11 years old. So the war in Afghanistan was already going before she was born. She's born into a world uh, of war. She's lost people in her own family to this war. Her father has been been injured by, by the effects of former wars. She grows up playing on on old rusty tanks and, and exploring caves full of uh, old munitions from former wars. I read a lot about the kids in Afghanistan from people who've worked with children there, from firsthand accounts uh, of, of young people in Afghanistan. I talked to the UNICEF team on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, because of my work with refugee and, and raising money for UNICEF, I have a lot of contacts there now, and they were able to. I was able to zoom in with people in Afghanistan while I was writing this and ask them questions about what life is like for children there, uh, especially for girls there in the past, before the American invasion, and 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 then during the war. So it was collecting as much information as I could about what life is like for the people of Afghanistan right now, but also that practice of setting myself aside and trying to look at a situation through the eyes of a person who is not me. And that a lot of times that means being critical of the United States. I am, I'm a huge patriot. I love the United States. I think we're the greatest country in the world. And I think that, uh, I think it's very patriotic to criticize the United States government and to, to say that we can do better. I think we can always be doing better. I, I don't think we've ever nailed it as a country. I try to be really honest with my books and my characters and say, look, Reshmina cannot be a stand-in for me. She needs to be herself. She needs to be telling us what she believes and what she feels. I remember when I was first researching, just doing initial research into 9-11, I, I start with a broad, with broad research. I, I look at context. I look at what happened before, during, and after an event, largely in the world political stage. So I can get an idea of, of how an event impacted the world when I'm going to write about it. And I, I noted one thing about the American coverage of 9-11. So often... The question wasn't, why did this happen? It was, how did we not see this coming, right? The question wasn't, what did we do to precipitate this? The question was, man, how can we make sure we see this coming next time and stop it? And I thought, well, we're ignoring a huge question here. There's never any justification for the kind of terrorist attack that happened on 9-11. I'm not saying that. But clearly, somebody out there was so angry at us, hated us so much that they would do this awful thing. And I think it's so weird to not ask why. And when we do ask why, and the answer becomes because America has been putting our nose into everybody's affairs for a hundred years, you know, since the beginning of the age of imperialism in the United States, once we started sticking our nose in everybody else's business, then of course, sometimes their nose is going to get bent out of shape. If we kick a hornet's nest, we might get stung. And we've been kicking a lot of hornet's nests around the world. And so I wanted to show that. I wanted to stop asking the question of why didn't we see this coming and maybe get back to the original question we should be asking, which is what did we do to precipitate this? I remember it was, it, it was unpatriotic to ask why. People Absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't ask why. And that also led to a whole train of sort of not censorship, but of, of people not exploring this as fully, as amply as they could have, because there was so much fear among people and such a thirst for revenge. Yeah, if you'll remember, this is the era of freedom fries. This is the time when 
when if a country refused us access to their airspace to fly our own planes over to get to the people who did this, we suddenly stopped calling things French fries and started calling them freedom fries, you know, like not all of us. But there was a, a push, you know, in Congress to do this, which is just preposterous. But there was this feeling that, yes, criticism was unpatriotic. And I, I feel like it's our duty as American citizens to ask questions of our government and uh, uh, of our country. We we can't always just say, well, our, the American government invaded Afghanistan. We, we as a people invaded Afghanistan. We elected the people who did it, and we continue to elect people who, who maintained that war. And I mean this sort of apolitically. This is a 20-year war. We've had Republicans and Democrats who have overseen this war. So it is a really, it's always a difficult thing because I want to see the world from the viewpoint of other people who are not American. But I am writing for an American audience. That's my primary audience is a Western audience. And so I always have to toe that line between being honest and being so critical that people take it as, oh, how should I put it? Like, take it as a personal affront. You know, I, I don't want people to think, oh, he's coming at me because I'm an American. I'm not. I'm an American too. And, and I love this country. But I think we have to ask ourselves really hard questions. And kids especially, middle schoolers, I think, they see the world in terms of black and white. You, you spoke about sort of black and white feelings after 9-11, how it became much grayer over the 20 years. Middle schoolers, I think, uh, often come at problems from a very, this is right and this is wrong kind of point of view. And I love them for that. I absolutely love that because I, I, I agree with them. Sometimes you have to look at something and say, hey, that's just wrong. Uh, but as we get older, we're like, oh, but there's religion to take into effect and to, into, into account and there's politics to take into account. And we have to live and let live. And but middle schoolers are like, heck no, man, if, if that's wrong, it's wrong. And I love that. And so I want to give them what I, what I try to do in my books is give everything that I can to a middle schooler about what happened on a day or in a particular event and let them decide what how they feel about it. Do they think that this was right? Do they think this was wrong? And let them go forward from, from that point, making their own decisions. I know as a reader, I was left with many questions, which I think is a tribute to you. The nuance, as we talked about, of the situation in Afghanistan, here's where great fiction steps in. I've, I've read hundreds of art news articles about Afghanistan, but nothing brought the trauma and the unease of the people of Afghanistan to me as much as this book. And Rishmin is saying, if we go against the Taliban, we'll be killed. <laughs> you know that? Right. And if we go with the Americans, we'll be killed. Like the, they are left in a no-win situation themselves. Right. The people of Afghanistan are in an incredibly difficult position. If they, if they work with the Taliban, the Americans see them as, as enemies and will kill them. If they work with the Americans, the Taliban see them as enemies and will kill them. And meanwhile, it's very difficult to maintain any sort of independence or, or neutrality when your village can be occupied by the Taliban or the Americans uh, one day after another. So they're in an impossible position, much like the United States found ourselves in once we entered Afghanistan. And I draw this parallel in 9-11, uh, on 9-11 in, in the North Tower for Brandon, and in Afghanistan for Reshmina in, in the present day, that sometimes there are no good answers. Sometimes you are left with an impossible decision. And no matter what thing you choose, it's going to be bad. And yet you must make a choice. 
because to not make a choice is also to suffer the consequences. And so that emerged as a big theme. I had not seen that as a theme going into this, this book. I do set out with things I want to say. You know, after I do the research and build my story, I outline my stories, and then I write the first draft. And so I, I know where I'm going. I know what the story is. But oftentimes a theme will emerge that I didn't expect. And this was one of them, this idea of no good answers and being in uh, between a rock and a hard place, just an impossible place. So yeah, that's one thing I definitely focused on with Ground Zero. I wanted to show both of these kids having to make really, really difficult decisions and understanding that I think what I, what I basically come down to is that people should decide for themselves. Even if there's a good decision and a bad decision, I guess I should say if there are two bad decisions, that at least let the person who's going to suffer the consequences be the person to make that decision, not have that decision made for them by somebody else. That's about the only thing I can tell you about two bad decisions. Otherwise, <laughs> we all know you're, you're, you're in for trouble no matter which way you choose. Right. And it's so moving to both Brandon's account and Rashmina's account children suffering from trauma. I mean, with 9-11, it's so painful. We've looked away. With Afghanistan, it's easy to look away because it's far flung. And here we are seeing the very real effects that children suffer because of our actions. Yeah. The, the founder of a group called Save the Children, a group like UNICEF that works to help kids around the world, she famously said, all wars are wars against children. And when you stop and think about that, which I have many times writing the books that I do, I, I realize that she's right, that adults decide to go to war, adults engage in war, and adults suffer in wars. But kids also suffer, and they don't get to make that decision to go to war, and they are not oftentimes, hopefully, not fighting in the war. There are child soldiers around the world, but most of the major wars that are fought are fought by adults. And so it's children who suffer, and they were not the people who made the decision to go into that battle to begin with. And I try to remember that every time that I, every time I write a book about a war situation for middle schoolers. So many times children are the victims of events like this and they are powerless in these, event, in these events. And I think that powerlessness is something that every kid understands, whether they are Reshmina in Afghanistan or whether they are a kid in America today who is not in the middle of a war situation. As kids, we all have had that moment where we are entirely powerless and we do not have control over the decisions being made around us. And yet we suffer the consequences of those decisions. And so I think that that's a very universal feeling that I can take to its extreme when I write about war situations. And I think that the kids who are thankfully not in those situations can read that and, and sympathize and empathize immediately because they themselves have been powerless, but maybe not to that extent. So I think powerlessness is always a, a theme, uh, an element uh, of my books when writing about kids and dangerous situations. It's just, it's a factor. And, and as a, as a middle, middle grade writer, it's also a challenge because you want to give your main characters agency in the story. You want to make sure that your characters are the ones driving the action. But so often when you're nine years old, when you're 11 years old, you are not driving the action of your life. Your parents are, or your teachers are, or other people in your community who, uh, adults, you know, every adult who steps into your life has more agency than you do. And so a real challenge for me is both to show that lack of power, but then also provide a way for my young protagonists to take that, take a 
a kind of power for themselves at the end and at least have some impact on their own lives that's that's self-driven. I think this will spark so many great discussions among young people. I really do. I'd love for you to read an excerpt for our listeners and just set the stage a little bit, if you would. Sure. I've got one picked out for you. So um, I thought I would read something from Brandon's section. So Brandon is the one in the the North Tower on 9-11. And uh, just to set it up a little bit, Brandon, as I said, has gotten in trouble at school. He's suspended. He has to go to work with his dad. And his dad works at Windows on the World, the restaurant at the top of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Brandon has a plan, though. He has a plan to fix things. Uh, He got into trouble because a bully, uh, he he was defending a friend against a bully at school. The bully had taken a toy uh, from his friend, and he decided he would lash out and try and punch the bully and get the toy back. And in the process, the toy was broken. So he thinks, okay, I'm going to go down to the mall in the basement of the World Trade Center. I'm going to buy a new toy for him. And I can't undo the, the punch in the face I gave the bully, but I can undo messing this thing up for my friend and, and get him a, a new toy. And he thinks, I'm just going to sneak out of the, the windows on the world, run to the elevators, go down to the mall in the bottom of the World Trade Center, get this thing and get back. My dad won't even know I'm gone because his dad is wor- uh, busy working with the restaurant. So Brandon has just slipped into the elevator. This is prior to the attacks, just minutes before the attacks, in fact. And Brandon gets himself into an elevator. He can't take the express elevator. There was one elevator that shot all the way down uh, that would go down 107 floors in 60 seconds to get to the ground floor. But he's missed that one. So he has to take the local, which is basically one of the many elevators. There were something like uh, 99 elevators in each of the Twin Towers. And so um, most of those went in blocks of like 10 or 20 floors, and then you would get off and get another elevator that would go down. So he's taking one of the slow elevators, and he's a little frustrated at his lack of speed. So let's start here. For anybody reading along with me, this is on page 20 of Ground Zero. He'd made it. Brandon leaned against the railing at the back of the elevator and smiled. He couldn't fix punching Stuart Pendleton in the nose, but he could fix breaking Cedric's Wolverine gloves, and that made him feel better. The elevator slowed to a stop, and an elderly white man with silver hair got on. The elevator stopped again, and a blonde white woman in a purple pantsuit got on, followed by a big white guy in a blue blazer and a red necktie. I shouldn't have taken the local, Brandon thought. He glanced at his Lego watch. 8.45 a.m. He was going to have to be speedy if he didn't want his dad to find out he was gone. The elevator stopped again, and a man with brown skin and a graying beard wheeled a catering cart with empty dishes onto the elevator. He wore a light blue turban that matched the color of his Windows on the World uniform. Brandon froze. The man wore a name tag that said Chavender. Brandon didn't recognize him, but he worried Chavender might have seen Brandon around the restaurant and would know he was Leo Chavez's son. Brandon slipped farther behind the big white guy and and watched the red digital numbers of the floors tick by. 94... 93, 92, 91, 90, 89, 88, 87, 86, thoom. Something boomed above them, and the elevator suddenly went sideways. Brandon grabbed onto the handrail to not fall over. Two other passengers, the blonde woman and the old man, did fall down, but Brandon couldn't have helped them even if he'd tried. 
The elevator was shuddering so wildly it felt like someone had taken him by the shoulders and was shaking the life out of him. And then a new sensation. They were falling. No, the elevator, the elevator car wasn't falling. It was leaning farther and farther and farther to the side like they were on the tilt-a-whirl at Coney Island. Brandon held tight onto the, ran, onto the handrail, digging in his heels, while the other passengers slid forward until they were all pinned to the opposite wall. The serving cart toppled over, spilling dishes and water and silverware. Brandon's mind raced, trying to make sense of what was happening. The elevator couldn't swing this far in the elevator shaft. Elevator shafts were just a little bigger than the elevators inside them. That meant, that meant the whole tower was leaning, all 107 floors. That wasn't possible, was it? The elevator stopped tilting, and Brandon held his breath. No one uttered a word. Then slowly, sickeningly, popping and complaining the whole way, the elevator began to right itself. It came up straight, and Brandon caught his breath, but then the elevator swayed in the other direction. The passengers who'd been pinned to the wall scrambled to cling to the railing to stay put. Brandon closed his eyes and braced himself as silverware and broken plates came skittering across the floor toward him. But the elevator didn't swing so far this time. It shuddered and groaned its way back upright. The lights flickered but stayed on, and suddenly everything was quiet again. What the hell? The silver-haired man started to say, and then the elevator began to slide. One of hundreds of heart-pounding moments in your book. I don't even know how you wrote this. It was really, really emotional and wrenching. Thank you. It, it was very difficult to write. As I said, uh, 10 years ago, I tried to write about 9-11 and found it difficult, well, impossible at that point. So now I thought, it's been 20 years. I have to be over this now. I have to be over the emotions, the fear, the anger. And jumping back into the research, I just felt it all over again. And uh, this was, I, I know, the most emotionally difficult book I have ever written. And I have written about the Holocaust. I have written about refugees. Uh, I have written about war and terrorism before. I have never written anything that was as difficult as this to write. I was just pulled back to all those feelings that, that I had that day. And I wasn't even in New York City that day. I wasn't in Pennsylvania. I wasn't at the Pentagon. I wasn't in any of the places in the United States that were immediately affected by 9-11. But I, like every other American who was alive then to see it, was just devastated by it and stunned by it. I remember being unable to sort of find pleasure in little things in life for weeks, for months after this. Music, sports, uh, reading, the things that I enjoyed, suddenly I just couldn't find any pleasure in them. And I, I remember just sort of it's that kind of feeling where you just kind of find yourself staring at a wall. You wake up and you're like, wait, what am, what am I thinking? What am I doing? And, you know, every now and then you can catch yourself doing that now. But back then I felt like it was every day. I mean, I would just every day I would catch myself sort of staring off into space as all just as my mind was trying to process everything that was going on. And that feeling came back as I was writing this. And I was like, Alan, you cannot stare off into space. You have a book to write. And so I, I had to push through those feelings one of the things I talk about when I do virtual events now around this book is how I think that we don't talk about, we, we remember 9-11. We, we have signs that say never forget. And, and we, we commemorate the occasion every September 11th with memorials and, and speeches and prayers and, and silences. But we don't often talk about 9-11 in the interim. We don't often talk about 9-11 every other day of the year. People are beginning to. 
and and teachers are contacting me and saying we're doing a unit about 9/11 and we're using your book and I'm I'm so grateful for that. But for for I think for almost 20 years I feel like it's taken us 20 years let's say to get to that point. And I think a big reason is that for many of us we didn't have closure. You know Osama bin Laden was captured uh 10 years after 9/11 and was immediately executed, and his body was dumped at sea. We didn't even get to see him go on trial for, for what he did. And there are people who are awaiting trial at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba who, who took part in this, who helped organize it, and we still haven't brought them to trial. Uh, I, I feel like we, we never had that, that, that closure, and, and of course the ongoing war in Afghanistan, that, that, was, that was just never-ending. We never had any kind of closure. Those of us who saw it happen and lived through it and felt it. And will will the end of the war in Afghanistan bring closure to us now? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, maybe we're ready. Maybe we're ready as a country to not only close the, the book on this chapter of American life, of American experience, but also maybe to look back with that critical eye that you and I talked about earlier and say, Okay, now maybe can we ask why this happened? If we couldn't ask 20 years ago, can we ask that now? Can we have that discussion now? Because that may be the way we keep this from happening again. Without question. I have to say, like the teachers you talked to, I am so grateful you wrote this book. I think it's books like this that will help us do the right thing and understand our past and inform our future. So thank you, Alan. Thank you, Susanna. I, I appreciate it. I, I, I hope that young people will see what happened that day in Ground Zero, but also how we got there and where we went after that. My great thanks again to author Alan Gratz for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Alan's book and for additional 9-11 resources, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time. 